You can see why he was considered for the court. What you can't make out is why he wasn't selected. Um, I really like the paper. It is long because it grapples uh, with difficult questions and difficult topics, and it attempts to discern a deep structure within the uh, Article II's framework. If I were going to come up with a different title, I would come up with the title of the sovereign, the sausage, and the structure, because I think those are the three. I think those are the three principal contributions of, of Michael. Michael does a great job of telling us all about the crown's powers in, in great detail. He does a tremendous job going through the history of the creation of Article II uh, in, in great detail in the first part of the paper. And then he spends a lot of time trying to tell us um, why, the, why Article II is structured in the particular way that it is, and I think that's deeply interesting. And I think those are the three strengths of, of the paper. And because my job is to be somewhat disagreeable, I'm now going to turn to where, uh, where, I think, um, um, where I think perhaps criticism is warranted, or at least uh, I will voice some criticisms. So I thought, you know, um, I thought it was interesting that Michael spent a lot of time on how the sausage was made by what you might call the committee, right, the convention. But there's not much discussion of how the sausage was received by the floor, the you know, in the in the states, right? How what people took Article Two to mean, and uh, I can see why he would do that because the article is pretty long. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about Article Two in the states, much more than uh, than Michael gives, and some of it, you know, some of it I think supports his theory. I'm not sure all of it does, but I think I would I would have thought that you know this. You'd want to talk about that as well if you're going to talk about how the sausage is being made. And then I also thought perhaps, you know, there's some discussion of practice um, early on, but I don't think there's uh, much uh, discussion of practice. And I would think that that would tend to either confirm, deny, or maybe be irrelevant to Michael's claims about the structure um, of Article 2. So those are just um, ge uh, some general comments. Let me make some more particularized ones. Um, I'm not sure what is discussed by, what is gained by discussing prerogative. Um, I found English discussions on prerogative very unhelpful. I think people are just using the term differently. A lot of people are just using it to say power. And so I don't know what's gained by adding the word prerogative other, as opposed to just the king's powers. Um, and I'm not sure what purchase Michael gets from it either, because at the end of the day, he had, you know, at the end of the paper, he just says there are prerogative powers um, that are defeasible and that are, aren't defeasible under our Constitution. And it seems like that doesn't really map onto anything in the English Constitution. And I know, so I know that some English commentators are using prerogative, and I know some people in the convention are using the term, but I, I find it unhelpful, because I think the, the English are using it differently over time. Um, on the question of the Crown's executive powers, I think they were all defeasible in the sense that they were all controllable by Parliament. Um, there are statutes regulating the pardon power, there are statu statutes regulating the war power. Um, I don't think there was a part of the Crown's power that wasn't touchable by statute. Um, I, I, that might have implications for uh, the President's power, but I don't, I don't see anything in the English Constitution that suggests there's, there's a particular area that the Parliament can't regulate by statute. The Crown likes to think that there is. It constantly says you can't do this until Parliament does it, and then um, you know a new a new a new area is encroached upon by Parliament, and that's just the history of I think of the English. Um, and then 
On the structure of Article 2, Michael says that the vesting clause, I think, is defeasible by Article 1, Section 8, but Article 2, Section 1 is not. And I don't, uh, that might be right, but I don't see anything in Article 2 suggesting as much. I don't know why we would say that if the vesting clause vests authorities, it is particularly susceptible to being defeased by um, Article 1, Section 8, but our Article 2, Section 2 is not. And so let me give you an example. The, the, you know, I told you that the pardon power in England was defeasible. I don't know why you would assume it's not under the Constitution. I think the, the, I think the way to think about whether um, something is defeasible in Article 2 is to ask whether Congress has substantive authority over it. If it does, it's defeasible, regardless of its placement in Article 2. Uh, and if it doesn't, if Congress doesn't have authority, of course they can't, they can't take away the President's power because they don't have any legislative power to do so. But the answer to that question is to be found in Article 1, I don't think in Article 2. Article 2 never tells you that the President's power is exclusive or it can't be defeased. It never says that the vesting power is exclusive or can't be defeased. So I don't, I don't know if you can tell by reading Article 2 which of those powers are supposed to be exclusive or not. So let me, let me give you an example, a concrete example, the Commander-in-Chief power. Um, I think Michael's position is that's not something that Congress can regulate. Um, but I think, I think it, it is. Um, I've said as much in an article called Regulating Presidential Power, and here's why. Uh, there doesn't need to be an army and a navy. Right? The president would be a commander-in-chief of no one if there's no army and navy. And there doesn't, so if there doesn't need to be an army and navy, it doesn't seem like that. That, that, that by itself, I think, is a problem with the notion that he has to be a commander-in-chief of someone. If there is no one to command, there is no commander-in-chief, I, I think. But going beyond that, Congress regulated um, things that I think would be within the President's power as Commander-in-Chief by statute. They decided where ships would patrol, they decided where troops would be stationed, they decided who would be attacked in time of war, and they did this repeatedly across wars. And I think that's in, it's certainly at least in tension with the notion that the Commander-in-Chief authority is something that Congress can't regulate because it's an Article II, uh, Section 2. Um, I'll just end with two more points. I don't know how long I've gone. Um, <coughs> Michael says about the take care clause, um, the clause is, is about execution by others. The president has to take care that others execute the laws. What if a statute requires the president to execute a law? I think Michael's reading suggests that the take care clause doesn't apply because it's the president shall take care that laws are faithfully executed by others, which would suggest that he has no faithful execution himself when he is executing. But of course, presidents do execute the law all the time because some statutes specifically convey discretion to them. Even if the English king could not himself or herself, the, the, the queen, could not execute the law, our president certainly can. And there's no constitutional bar, uh, even under Michael's reading, I think, for Congress to vest law execution authority with the president. If that's true, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's a mistake to read the take care clauses only, as only suggesting he's got to take care that the laws be faithfully executed by others rather than by anyone who's executing the law. And then, um, finally, um, on the question of ultimate unitariness, um, Michael's theory about the unitary executive, um, I think Michael says that Congress can vest discretion in individual officers and, such that the president himself can't make the decision. And he cites some famous instances where presidents certainly act as if they can't make the decision themselves. I think the most famous incident is Jackson firing um, 
Treasury secretaries because they won't remove the bank deposits. And, and that certainly suggests that Jackson didn't think that he could remove the deposits himself when the statute conveyed that discretion to the, to the, um, to the Treasury secretary and didn't mention the president. Um, on the other hand, if you look at uh, the ratification discussions uh, in the states and in the pamphlets and commentaries, people over and over say the president has a power to execute the laws. They're not just saying that he has a power to superintend, he has the power to execute the laws, and that's what the executive power is. You, of course, have Hamilton saying that the president is, quote, the constitutional executor uh, of the laws. And I might draw, draw an analogy. Uh, federal judges are given judicial power, or federal courts more precisely. Um, consistent with that, can Congress say that the clerk shall decide the case? And that uh, if, you know, if Judge McConnell doesn't like it, he can re remove Will Bode? I think that would be the same sort of argument um, that Michael could, you know, that someone like Michael could make about the judicial power. But I don't, I don't think that's how we understand the vesting clause of Article Three. I think, I don't think Congress can shift away the decision-making authority away from judges to someone else in in the in the um, in uh, in the courthouse. So, I mean, I. I kind of, you know, I've sort of exaggerated my differences here. I actually agree with almost everything that Michael says, but my job is not to be agreeable. My job is to, to push and prod. And, and this is a tremendous paper, and, you know, I, this is great to be part of this. Michael, would you like to? Yes. Uh, you, you raised some really interesting questions. Uh, so I have good answers to some of them, and I have to think about some of them. Uh, I'm going to disregard a few, but focus on maybe four or five as quickly as I can. Uh, you point out that under the British Constitution uh, that there were no non-defeasible prerogatives, and in fact, the Parliament is constantly passing statutes that take away uh, prerogative powers of the king. Uh, this is correct, and, and it's also really important for understanding how our constitutional system uh, works differently. The, the technical formal reason all prerogatives were defeasible in Britain is that the, the formulation was this, the prerogative powers could not be taken away from the king without his consent. A statute doesn't go into effect without the king's signature, which was his consent. His consent could be extorted for a variety of ways, and so actually the prerogatives in formal constitutional terms are indefeasible without his consent. In the American system, it's going to work very differently than that because uh, the prerogatives are now constitutionally vested. The president can't give them away. He can't give his consent. And so uh, and this is one of the ways in which I think that our executive becomes, uh, in, a, in a funny way, much more powerful than the, uh, than the British model. Uh, almost through the back door. Um, second issue is, uh, is, why, um, is why I think that the powers coming from the vesting clause are defeasible, but not those, the, per, the pure prerogative powers of uh, Article I, Section 2, such as the pardon. And Sai, you, you suggest that this is really an Article I question, not an Article II question. That is, where would Congress get the authority to take away or regulate the pardon power? Um, I don't actually think that works, because I think 
wherever Congress got its power uh, to create crimes and to specify punishments, surely the Congress could say, you know, uh, 10, 10 to 20 years and not subject to, uh, to pardon. Uh, as a matter of enumerated powers, uh, I don't see any obstacle to that. The reason Congress can't do that, I believe, is because the pardon power is, uh, is vested in this indefeasible way by, uh, by Section 2 of uh, Article 2. The commander-in-chief power is, the, is very hard, and, I'm not, and I may not be right about this. I, I, it, what Sai says does worry me uh, a lot. Now, I, I will say this, that I think some of the, pro, of the issue here has to do with the fact that powers which were understood to be part of the commander-in-chief power under the British system are actually specifically enumerated powers under Article One, Section 8. And here I worry particularly, a point particularly, uh, to Congress's power to make the rules and regulations for the conduct of the, of the um, uh, armed services. Uh, and so I think that when, uh, when the president uh, governs the armed services, and he allows, for example, particular forms of interrogation, and then Congress passes a law which regulates the conduct of the armed forces, I think that Congress's power prevails. But this is because our constitutional notion of commander-in-chief is actually much more limited than, than the background understanding uh, in, in Britain. A lot of commander-in-chief powers are, in fact, given to Congress. Now, Cy's examples of uh, telling ships where to patrol or where troops can be stationed, uh, that worries me. I need to look at that, see what was said. I need, this is something I can't, I can't respond to. Uh, very troubling for my theory point and may, may prove that my theory isn't right. Um, take care clause. Uh, what if Congress actually vests authority in the president to execute a law? Does he not have to do it faithfully? I think the question here, I do think, I think it does, if he has the power, and, and then there are a number of statutes that do this, the most recent and conspicuous one that we're all talking about being uh, the portion of the Immigration and Nationality Act that gives to the president of the power by proclamation to uh, exclude any class of alien that he considers to be detrimental to the, to the national interest. That's vested in the president himself. It is not vested in the Secretary of, 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 uh, of uh, uh, Homeland Security. Um, I think that the president, when he takes care that that law be face, faithfully executed, he's just looking in the mirror. He does have to execute it faithfully, but I don't think that in the ordinary course, at least, I have to think this through, but I don't think it makes him subject to the same kinds of, of uh, reviewability that would be applicable if, the, if it had been vested in the Secretary of Homeland Security. Now, I don't know if the following is deeply constitutional or just an accident of the Administrative Procedure Act. But given that most law is executed through officers subordinate to the president, and that they are defined as agencies under the Administrative Procedure Act. Every, almost all law enforcement is reviewable in court under standards like uh, substantial evidence requirement, arbitrary and capricious review, uh, and, and so forth. 
Um, the president is not is defined as not being an agency for purposes of the Administrative Procedure Act. That means that for those handful of statutes where Congress has vested the authority directly in the president, there is no APA review. Um, interesting, I mean, clear recent example of this was President Obama's designation of a three point uh, or one point three million acre. A monument in Utah, hugely un, hugely unpopular, no doubt. Uh, cost benefit analysis would have had something to say about that, but it is unreviewable because it's vested in the president himself, and so he's the only one who gets to decide whether he's faithfully uh, executing the law. The immigration law seems to be that way as well. Constitutional challenges aside, but just the basic idea that this, that he didn't do a very good job, that there's no rationality to the selection of those seven countries, for example. I don't think that that is uh, reviewable. But whether that is deeply constitutional or merely accidental, I'm not quite sure. It does bear such a close resemblance to the British system. Remember that under the British system, the king could not personally execute the law. So this is a difference between the American and the British system. The king, all execution had to be through the ministers. And, the reason, and one of the reasons for that is the king could do no wrong, which is to say he's completely unreviewable. He cannot do any wrong, and therefore he always has to operate through his ministers, and they are responsible. And since... Uh, and that has an, an amazingly close resemblance to what we have maybe stumbled onto with the Administrative Procedure Act and the definition of what is an agency, I have to give some more thought to that. The fact that the Administrative Procedure Act doesn't come along until the late 1940s is not a, you know, it makes it seem as though maybe it's not deeply constitutional, but it, you know, there may be, uh, there may be uh, uh, connections that uh, I don't know about uh, just now. One last thing is ultimate. Uh, unitariness, uh, so uh, uh, Psi is, what was the point here? I can't read my hand, I can't read, I can't, I can't, I can't, actually the problem is that I can't read my handwriting, not that you didn't make a great point, but why don't we move on?